Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. My guest today is a woman that has been described as the most influential woman in the mortgage industry and a vital force in shaping the state of sustainable home ownership in America. That's quite a mouthful. She is also the vice chair in 2020 of the Mortgage Bankers Association, amongst many other titles and honors and awards that she has received. She is, more importantly, an authentic leader. And how do I know this? You've only got to look at the comments that she receives on social media and talk to people in her workplace and people that she has worked with previously to know that this woman knows what gravitas is and is truly an authentic leader. She is Christy Furco, Executive VP and President of Mortgage Banking at Flagstar Bank. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you here. So Christy, I mean, the most influential woman in the mortgage industry, that's quite something. But let's talk about you personally. What's your story? How did this all happen? Yeah, it's a little overwhelming, all of it, actually. Um, I come from really humble beginnings. I mean, I was born in Compton, California, um, kind of the second of four children to a track coach and a stay-at-home mom. Uh, my father um, actually received the head coaching job at the University of Arizona when I was four years old. Um, and the distinction in that was he was named the first black head coach at a major university. So we traversed from Compton, California, which was 99.99% black to Tucson, Arizona, which was 99.99% white um, and grew up there uh, in Tucson, uh, going back and forth between Tucson and California. And so I traversed both of those worlds. And that's such an important part of my upbringing because I think it really shaped um, this adaptability of going back and forth between uh, those two environments. Um, I also think being the daughter of a track coach, you know, I tell people my parents um, didn't raise boys and girls, they just raised kids. And so they encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. So I played football, I raced motocross, um, you know, I just did anything that, that we wanted to do. My parents really encouraged that. And, you know, as a track coach, um, my father, you know, they raised us 
more coaching us, like my dad would his athletes uh, versus raising children. So I have actually no memories of my parents ever telling me, no, I couldn't do something. It was always everything had confidence or everything had consequences. And they really just encouraged us to kind of be our best self. So I grew up um, really without limits, um, without any boundaries being placed on me. Whatever I wanted to do, my parents encouraged me to to do it. And so it really helped as I grew up and I tried different things. Um, again, there was no such thing as failure in my house. It was only just learning different ways or better ways to do it the next time. And so that was a freedom really growing up with that type of environment, encouragement, just to be your best self. Again, I think one of the things that comes with being raised by a track coach is um, that the limit is only on yourself, right? And track, it's all about your personal best. Can you better your personal best? And so I also just grew up not thinking about kind of competition versus others. It was always about how do I be my best self? And so that, as I as I grew and went into the corporate environment, that really shaped kind of who I was because I didn't think about other people as kind of competition. I wanted the best for them and wanted them to do their personal best because I was going to be my personal best. And so as I graduated from college, I went to the University of Southern California. Uh, I was a finance undergrad and came out of uh, college, uh, started at Baxter Healthcare, actually selling hospital supplies. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, then moved into sales management, moved into human resources, um, and then left Baxter after six years, uh, moved into Pepsi. So the Frito-Lay division initially of Pepsi, um, but eight and a half years there, um, all in human resources, actually. Uh, and then that journey took me to PepsiCo headquarters in uh, New York, and I was there during 9-11. And uh, I think like many people after 9-11, you know, I was contemplating kind of what was the meaning of life. And, um, you know, I decided it wasn't selling chips and soda for the rest of my life. And I started researching companies that could balance this workaholic DNA that I had with this altruistic need to give back and have my life have some meaning. And I researched three companies, um, Disney, because that was in California and I wanted to get back home to family, the Red Cross, and then Fannie Mae. And on October 11th, 30 days later, a headhunter called about a job at Fannie Mae. And I don't believe in coincidences. I believe my life is divinely orchestrated. And so I took the call and interviewed with Fannie Mae and got the job. So you had you had identified Fannie Mae as a target company and had not approached them and then out of the blue, a recruiter calls you. Out of the blue. 30 days later, a recruiter called me. Yeah, I had run into a lady at a conference um, years earlier, the executive leadership conference, and she worked for Fannie Mae. And she just talked about what an incredible company it was and this um, very mission-oriented company. And just I'd never met someone who was so excited about who they worked with. And it just stuck with me. And so fast forward, you know, four years later, when I was contemplating what I wanted to do, Fannie Mae came to mind from that experience with that young lady and just started, you know, researching and understanding what they did. And then out of the blue, the head hunter called me on October 11th. Yeah, I know, pretty extraordinary. So um, I took the job at Fannie Mae and went in as the head of HR supporting the single family business. And 
Um, just did some great work there. It ended up being 15 years, five of it in human resources. And then I got the opportunity to move into a line business, which is a very rare transition from a lot of HR folks moving from HR into actually running the business. Um, had great mentors and support there that enabled me to, to do that. And so moved into running the business and um, or having a line position there and did that for 10 years until 2017 when I left and joined uh, Flagstar Bank. And so it's been a little over two years now since I've been at Flagstar and uh, coming in as the president of mortgage, you know, really this opportunity to take really a career's worth of kind of learnings and experience in different industries and really apply it into, um, I think, one of the greatest gifts, uh, which is helping people achieve the American dream of home ownership. And so it's incredibly fulfilling having a job and leading a team uh, where we get to help people realize their dreams. And so it's it's been an incredible kind of journey so far, but super excited about it. I love the fact that your father was a coach. So this idea of looking at your individual potential and not being so concerned about what others are doing, that's clearly something that you've really taken on board with your leadership style. And I think it's something that uh, we struggle with in corporate America today, right? We're often concerned about what others think of us and we must look better than the other person in the boardroom. Um, it's got to be hard for you when you're faced with an environment where you see that culture playing out, where people are concerned with the competition. How do you handle that? How do you stay true to yourself and what you know is the right way to lead when perhaps you're surrounded by others who don't share the same philosophy? Sure. Actually, it's not very hard for me at all because it's who I am. And so I, um, what I try to do in my leadership is really understand each individual and who they are. So what are their strengths? What are their opportunities? What are their gifts? And how do I really bring that to the team? And I try to be conscious as I build the team. I have a big matrix actually of my team and what their strengths and what their opportunities are. And as I go and fill open positions, I try to be intentional, not only about what do I need for that position, but what does the team need as a whole to be able to really lead the organization in the way that we do. And so I really believe in complementary skills. I really believe in kind of bringing each individual's kind of best self to the work that we have to do and really encouraging that. And I do think to your point, you know, there is an expectation, especially in corporate America, about how people, you know, engage or how people show up or a certain way to act or be. Um, That was really prevalent when I worked at Pepsi. You know, they used to call it Pepsi pretty. I mean, there was a profile at Pepsi and you had to meet that and the most successful people did. Um, At Flagstar, there's not uh, kind of that profile, if you will, but it is about really understanding what each individual, what's their role and what what are they required to bring? And then what's their uniqueness that they bring to the role? And then as a leader, trying to get that best out of them so they could really be their best selves. And so I try to be really intentional about each individual and what they need versus what this corporate mold or expectation is. Because I believe, again, the sum comes together or, you know, the parts come together as the sum of the whole. And as long as we can deliver as a team on the result that the company needs, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Well, you talk about a mold. 
And I have to tell you, you know, when I think about what the president of mortgage banking for um, a large bank would look like, I don't picture you. I honestly picture (laughs) a stuffy conservative white guy. I hate to say that, but it's true. And I, and let's even take the, the gender and race out of it. You know, I just, I just, I imagine somebody who's very conservative, very buttoned up, not with this great big personality and warmth that you have. So how did you, how did you break through that mold? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Dave Motley, who uh, was the past chair of the the MBA, um, the Mortgage Bankers Association, uh, he actually said the Mortgage Bankers Association is male, pale, and stale. Exactly. Oh, what a exactly great way. what he said, right? <laughs> uh, and he can say that. He's a white male. Um, but he was really calling the organization to the need to embrace diversity and inclusion and have people you know, change the complexion literally of the organization. I mean, in mortgage banking, 56 per, or the average age of the average loan officer is 56 years old. And then when you look at the appraisers, the average age of the appraiser is 58 years old. And so, you know, if that continues to be the state of the industry and we don't get new energy and new blood in, then, you know, mortgage banking is headed for a rude awakening. And so um, I am very rare looking like me in mortgage banking. Uh, It is not unusual to be the only one of me in the room. Uh, We are desperately working to change that. But I think some of it goes back to my upbringing and, you know, traversing both you know, kind of a majority black and a majority white environment my whole career. Again, my parents encouraged us to just be who we were, regardless of what environment uh, that we were in. And so breaking the mold wasn't something I set out intentionally to do. I just, you know, showed up as as me and ended up breaking through that. But I think it comes with being very comfortable with who I am. I, I am a black woman. And at last count, I'm the only black female leading a mortgage banking company in the country. Uh, I'm one of two blacks and one of 12 women leading uh, a mortgage banking company. And so there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done to, you know, diversify this industry. And there's some great work that's being done by both the Mortgage Bankers Association, um, Tony Thompson at NAMBA, you know, is has this uh, initiative called Mission 2025. And the desire is to introduce um, young people, millennials and people of color into the mortgage banking uh, industry. And I work very diligently in talking to them and encouraging them that this mortgage banking is a great career for young people. It's still one of the only careers where you can earn a six-figure salary and not be college degreed. Um, we certainly encourage college degrees, but um, it it provides just a wealth of opportunity. And as I said before, I mean, you're helping people realize their dreams. It's a noble industry in that regard. And so for me, breaking the mold is just about showing up, being my best self every day and working hard. You know, I always say I won't be the smartest person in the room, but I'll probably be the hardest worker 
labor in the room, uh, this work ethic, just working hard and being diligent and doing what I need to do, um, you know, to be successful. And that has gotten me noticed and that has gotten me um, kind of recognized and, you know, the opportunities then have presented themselves for me to do more and take on more responsibility. And then with that responsibility comes the responsibility of bringing others you know, kind of along with you. And so that's what I've been intentional about, about doing as I've grown my career, really bringing others along the journey so we could, again, change, change what people expect of the mortgage banker, right? There is no typical mortgage banker. I'm demonstrating through my leadership and the work that, that we're doing at Flagstar that you don't have to do it the mold and you can still be successful. So what are you doing? Can you give us some specifics? What are you doing to bring um, millennials and younger generation into your business to make it attractive to them? W- what are you doing? Yeah. So at Flexor, we do internships. And so we're introducing people uh, to the business and being intentional about courting those individuals. So not only making sure they have a great experience during the summer while they're there, but then following up with them, encouraging them to come back the next year. So they have two years, three years under their belt before they graduate. And then because it's been such a positive experience and they think about banking and specifically mortgage banking as a career option. Um, I mentioned Tony Thompson earlier, um, NAMBA and this mission 2025, you know, he is courting at historically black colleges, these kids and having day long workshops, bringing them in. So at the Mortgage Bankers Association conference that was just in Austin in October, he brought in a couple hundred kids that listened to speakers. I was one of them that, you know, talked about a career in mortgage banking, what those opportunities were, and really gave them exposure to the industry. And we'll continue to nurture that, offer those kids internships so that, again, they get comfortable with this is an industry that they can think of for their career. It's funny when you talk to mortgage bankers about how do they get into mortgage banking. No one you know, when we were growing up said, oh, I want to be a mortgage banker when I grow up. It's something that everyone just fell into. And with these kids, we're being intentional to say, you can choose a career of mortgage banking while you're still in college and be intentional about how to grow your career in that way. And so internships and exposure have been the two biggest ways we've tried to do that with with these young millennials. (laughs) The MBA conference that uh, you went to earlier in the year, I started uh, following you on social media. Yeah. And I think from our previous conversation, this is one of the first times that you've really put yourself out there on social media. And you had a series of videos and what was happening in the conference. And it was really good. I mean, it was very authentic. It was short videos, you know, it was nothing. It was anybody would have a hard time watching, but they were very and personal, you know, it was you. Sure. And uh, I could see by the comments that were coming back that you were clearly an authentic leader and somebody that I wanted on the show, because quite frankly, I don't want anybody on the show who just says or thinks they're an authentic leader and they're really not. But you could see the the love really that's out there for you. You know, people genuinely care about you and they were thrilled to see you going out there on social media. I think when you're in a high level position, it's often difficult to take that leap. Uh, certainly when I was growing up with my career, we were told that you keep a line 
between your professional life and your personal life. And that line is blurred now sure. in this day and age. And it takes something to get over the hump, to put yourself out there um, on social media and put yourself in front of a camera, not just audio, right? and just do it. So could you talk a little bit about the thought process and how, how and why you decided to get more active on social media? Yeah. So interestingly, when I was with Fannie Mae, um, as a senior leader, SVPs and above, we couldn't be on social media at Fannie. Uh, and coming through the housing crisis, there was a lot of scrutiny um, against Fannie Mae. And so we were told we couldn't be on social media. And so I've never been on it. And I think times are changing and you see all of these social media influencers. And um, I just hired a new chief of staff and head of strategic initiatives and Christy Sue Camnett. And she is big on social media. And, and we had been talking for the last year about Flagstar, about how to increase our social media presence in general for the company, specifically for more mortgage and how to put it out there. And so Christy devised an entire strategy for everyone who was going to the conference. We had 28 people going to the conference and she devised a strategy and gave each one of us a task every day on things that we were supposed to be doing. And so um, I took that strategy and took it to heart like I do most things. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it 100%. Um, and I just put it out there and I was blown away by the response that I received. And, you know, like you said, Jan, I was just being me. I was just, you know, I had a spare moment. So I just shot a little video and posted it. And at last look, there were only over 9,000 people that looked at that video. And what's overwhelming for me is why would people be looking at the video? Um, but I think it helped me appreciate that people do want to hear from leaders and do want to know what they're up to. And there's an enormous responsibility around that, but it was quite easy to do. And so I was just speaking from the heart. It was unscripted. And I'm just talking about kind of what was going on at the conference and what was going on for me. And I enjoyed it. And the response is, as you said, I was completely overwhelmed by people's response to it. So it's something that we'll keep doing. Um, and it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to and just really being thoughtful about, you know, what's, what do people want to hear and how do I um, create content that is interesting, that really helps advance people's thinking, not only for the industry, um, but in leadership in general. And so uh, there will be more to come. It was a, it was a fun experiment, but, you know, really enjoyed kind of this initial foray into social media. And so I think we'll keep going. Well, it was a great, it was a great first time being out there. Yeah. Thank you. Something happened in this conference and I don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps you can enlighten us, but I came across this quote and it said that you were amazing I was moved and my well was filled with your courage, leadership, and vulnerability. This is something that somebody had posted in a comment on LinkedIn. What happened that would move somebody to write something like that? Yeah, so I was on a panel, um, Empower. Uh, it's a women's empowerment uh, group, uh, part of the Mortgage Bankers Association. So Marsha Davies, who's the chief operating officer of the MBA, this is her brainchild. And uh, it's really created a movement of women in the Mortgage Bankers Association. Over 14,000 women are now a part of the 
empower community. And the Saturday before the conference kicks off on Sunday, Marsha has an all-day leadership conference for women. And there were over 500 women that attended the Saturday event. I was on the kickoff panel with a group of amazing women and Byron Boston um, moderated the panel for us. And one of the questions he asked was, what was the low point of your career? And I shared the low point in my career, which interestingly was just in 2018. It was my first full year as president of banking at Flagstar. Um, I had, after 15 years of Fannie Mae, come into this new organization where at Fannie Mae I had proven leadership. They, I'd been very successful there. They knew me, they knew my style, they knew my capabilities. And here I find myself in a brand new organization that really didn't know me. And the market was very challenged. We were in this rising interest rate environment. We had set a very aggressive budget, thinking that we were gonna grow the business pretty significantly. And that had gotten locked down before I arrived. And so I find myself now with this very challenging budget in a very challenging market, and we struggled um, all year long. We struggled being behind budget, um, you know, just struggling to find our identity and to survive in, an, in a market where it was very competitive. People were using price as a lever and driving down profitability. And we weren't, as a publicly traded company at Flagstar, we weren't willing to do that. And I just talked about that struggle and that really struggle of confidence. It was a crisis of confidence for me, having really been successful most of my career and all of a sudden now finding myself not being successful and really struggling with how to do that. And I was describing what was happening uh, during that time to this, this group of women on the panel and the emotion that I felt back in 2018 came back to me in that moment. And I got emotional on the stage. And um, that really resonated with people to see a senior leader not be afraid to get emotional, you know, on a big stage in front of, you know, 500 people. Um, and I got emotional as I talked about it and how I worked myself through that and the support that I received from a group of amazing women that, you know, came alongside me and said, what do you need? How do we help you? And really encouraged me really at my lowest point. And I just shared that with the audience. And I was blown away by how that resonated with people, because I don't think people experience leaders, one, being that vulnerable and certainly not in such a public way. And the outpouring of love that I received, and that that comment is just one of them, from women who I gave them permission to own their own vulnerability in that moment, but it really resonated with people. And I think when you talk about, you know, authentic leadership, that's a huge piece of it is just allowing yourself when you feel fear or when you feel anxiety or when you feel emotional, just surrender to that and, and let that be. And that really resonated with people. And um, I was just telling my story and, and being me. And that's what people needed to hear and see to make it okay for them to kind of live their own journey. Vulnerability is the hallmark of authentic leadership. And that's a great example of showing others and giving others permission that it's okay to be vulnerable. But there's so much fear out there. We're afraid, particularly as women, we're afraid to show emotion, but men also, they don't want to show that vulnerability. They don't want to show that they are actually human beings and they have all these feelings and 
things that happen to them in the workplace as they do in their personal lives. How do people, what advice would you give to people to just to get over that, to break through that fear and be vulnerable and and really strive for that human connection? Because authentic leadership is all about human connection. How would you help people that are perhaps struggling with that right now? Yeah, well, you said it. I mean, authentic leadership is really about connection. It's about vulnerability. It's about being who you are. And I think there is this misconception that in order to ascend to the highest levels of whatever your chosen profession is, that you have to be perfect. And that's a fallacy. I mean, we are all as humans broken and fractured and imperfect. And that's what makes us who we are. And for leaders to be able to show that, show their imperfection, show their vulnerability, and show they're just like everyone else, it creates a greater connection for the team because it gives others permission to really be who they are. And I say to my team all the time, I don't have all the answers. Like we're figuring this out together. Like you show up and I show up and we bring a bunch of ideas together and we'll be better for it. And I think it's people want to know that people are real. People want to know that people are authentic. And that's the hallmark for me and my leadership. And I was very fortunate again, growing up with you know, my parents and having a track coach because my father didn't have those conceptions of corporate America because he wasn't in it. And so he didn't teach us that leadership for us or the models of leadership that I learned from watching my father lead his team was really about motivating them to be their best selves and understanding the uniqueness of each individual and how to bring that forward. And What's unique about all of us is, again, we're these broken and fractured humans. And to the extent that we bring that imperfection to work, and that's one of the greatest gifts I think a leader can give their team, is that I don't have all the answers and I don't have all it all figured out. And I'm going to make mistakes. And I hope you give me the same grace that I'll give you when you make those mistakes. But it's really encouraging each other to kind of move forward and show up as the best expression of ourselves and have that be accepted and received and embraced so we can then do our best work. Because I think when people are pretending, you hear people say, you know, oh, I'm one way at work and I'm a different person at home. And that's so sad to me when I hear people say that because someone's getting gypped in that. Either the home life or the work life is getting gypped from really who they are. And so I encourage people to bring their whole selves to work. Whoever that is, bring it, and we'll figure out how to best use that in the work environment to the benefit of the goals and objectives that we need to get done for the company. And so I think that giving people permission it's just that. It's just show up and be who you are. You'll be amazed at how that will be embraced and accepted. And if you have a good leader and you work for a good company, um, they will find out how to how to embrace that and harness that to get better results for the company. Because when people show up as their true and authentic selves, that's when the organization wins. I think it took me several years to learn that and to feel comfortable with an authentic leadership style. And as the years went by, I got more and more comfortable with it. And one thing 
that uh, struck me actually just the other day, because as as you know, I am truly, I am who I am today. Uh, all my love of ACDC and the black and red and <laughs> gothic lettering and the branding. I mean, you know, you, you I am exactly who, who uh, I was meant to be today. But one thing I was looking at the other day was looking at my wardrobe. And there were, there's two sides. There were, two, well, now there's one, but in my corporate life, there were two sides. There was the the work clothes and then the non-work clothes. And the two never crossed yeah. uh, because there was a, a mold or a persona that I thought I had to fit in the working world. And then there was who I really was outside of outside of work. Maybe that's a bit too much of a stark uh, description. but um, And it just struck me and I thought, wow, why, why couldn't I have just had one wardrobe? I don't know. So I think it is so important to, to step into this authenticity, not only with who you are and how you behave, but how you dress. And how you show up in the workplace. It's uh, its very important. Sure. Yeah, no, I would agree. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self in today's world? Yeah, I would tell my 25-year-old self, you don't know as much as you think you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true, right? At 25, I thought I had it all figured out. Um, and I... I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, again, I, I think this is part of my upbringing. My parents really encourage that intellectual curiosity. If we asked a question, they'd be like, I don't know, go find out. And they would seek us off. You know, back then it was the Encyclopedia Britannica. We didn't have the internet, but we'd have to look it up in these big books. Um, but I was encouraged to, you know, kind of seek answers to things. And so I've always been intellectually curious that way. But I did think I had quite a bit figured out at 25. And as I grew and aged, it was, I didn't know half as much as I thought I did. And so, um, you know, part of that intellectual curiosity, I think, is learn as much as you can from others. Um, and And I think the millennials nowadays... One, they have the whole world at their fingertips with the internet and Google, and the world itself is so much smaller to them because of their access to information. And so I would really just, you know, encourage the 25-year-olds to really just fervently go after that curiosity and of learning as much as they can, but not only you know doing the self-study, but learning from other people because the richness of experience can't be learned in a textbook or on the internet. That comes by engaging with people and listening to experiences and really figuring out then in all of that, what then works for you and then go forward and be your you know, kind of best self with that information or craft kind of who you are and your best self um, with that message. And so that that's what I would tell my 25-year-old self. And it's, it's going to be okay. You know, sitting here now at 53 years old, I, I know the mistakes that I have made and the foils that I have, have traversed. And, um, it all turns out okay. It's it's those experiences and those failures and those, you know, when things didn't go quite right that has given me the resilience to be sitting in this chair today and having the experience that that I've had. And so it doesn't break you. It just really makes you stronger. Yeah, well said. 
What's your legacy? What are you going to leave with? I'm still building it. Mm. I think I'm still building it. But um, what I want it to be and I want what I want people to remember me for and I wake up every day trying to do this is um, trying to be my best self and leave everything that I touch better than I found it and doing it in a way that shows caring for people and really glorifies God. I wake up every day being intentional about how do I touch someone's life or make a difference in what I do and that I did it being 100% authentically me, which is unapologetically black, which is unapologetically female, which is just unapologetically me and giving people permission to bring their whole best self and have that be okay. You said you touched somebody's life. I think that's something that's often underestimated by leaders. When you're somebody's boss, you have this awesome, awesome power over their lives. You influence their paycheck. You influence their lives in, in a very, very deep and significant way, not just from a monetary standpoint, but you, you influence how they behave every day. You know, people can go home from work feeling great about the work that they do and have enough energy to do what they like to do outside of work, whether it's time with their family or not. And the leader has that responsibility, can impact that person's life. And I think a lot of people miss that fact. I sense from you that that's something that you get very, very clearly. You don't underestimate that at all. For others listening to the podcast right now that are perhaps, you know, have never really thought about leadership in that term uh, before, in that way before, uh, any advice for them as they start to, to deal with this concept of touching a life? See people. It, it is about seeing people. Um, yesterday was Thanksgiving and I got a text message from a young lady that I worked with over 20 years ago. And um, she's, you know, still in my life through text messages and messages. But yesterday, um, she sent me a text that said, I'm, you know, so thankful for you. And you will never fully understand the impact that you have had on my life. And I think of you often and fondly and, you know, wish you and your family the best. And the story with this young woman 20 years ago, she was a young mother. She has all grown kids now, but she was a young mother with twins and was really struggling to balance work and life. And uh, she was a great performer for us. And I noticed how harried and distracted she was every time I, I saw her. And I just sat her down one day and said, what's going on with you? Like, I notice, I notice you're different. What's going on with you? And she described kind of what was happening in her life at that moment. And her husband traveled quite a bit. And and I just said to her, what do you need? And she said, I love my job and I don't want to quit, but I just need some time to figure it out. And we, you know, after a, a series of conversations, she ended up going part-time. And she was the best part-time employee that we had. Uh, I let her work from home. She she worked part-time. Uh, and I, I promised I got as many full-time hours out of her, but it gave her the space that she needed to figure out 
how to manage her young family and figure out how to do it all, be the mom she wanted to do and still contribute at work. And it was one of those things that it was just paying attention and seeing her and taking the moment to listen to what she was going on that had this lifelong and lasting impact that now 20 years later, you know, she still thinks of me to, to send a Thanksgiving. And that's all any of us want is to be seen and to be heard. And as a leader, you have the unbelievable gift but and privilege, but also obligation to be able to see your team for who they are. And if you notice and let them know that they have worth and that you see them, um, then they will deliver results beyond measure, not only for you personally, but for the company and what you're trying to get done. Yeah. People before the numbers, the numbers will People follow. before the numbers. That's, That's a very right. hard philosophy for a lot of leaders to comprehend and to certainly um, <clears throat> display behaviors that support that philosophy, but very, very well said. That's right. Gravitas is that irresistible quality that pulls people in, uh, that people feel safe, people feel that the leader believes in them and wants to unlock their potential. Uh, it sounds like to me that there's a lot of gravitas to you. But if you had to summarize gravitas in one or two leadership traits, what would it be to you? Gravitas to me, um, I would say energy and light. And um, for my own leadership journey, and I think some of my gravitas I get naturally for my stature. Uh, I'm, you know, 5'11", and as people say, I'm a commanding presence. Um, sometimes on my um, performance reviews, they would say, you know, force of nature is in a lot of my performance reviews. And I never understood what that meant until um, this was in 2004, uh, I participated in a leadership training class and um, they had a survey, 20 people, 10 in our personal life and 10 in our uh, business life. And the question, we had asked three questions, but one of the questions was, what shows up in the room when I do? And across all 20 of those people, 17 said some combination of energy and light. And I, that really struck me. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of it till that moment, but seeing that on paper and seeing those 20 people throughout all phases of my life put that on. And it made me really think about what was that? What was I doing that had, when I walked in a room, energy and light show up? And it was the energy of, um, again, I'm I'm an optimist by nature. I'm a positive person by by nature. But that energy was walking in a room and giving that to others. I mean, energy creates an electrical current. Um, and I gave that to other people and, and wasn't fully aware of it until that moment. And the light really was this belief of seeing the best in people. And by communicating that to people, I, we all have a story and I know what mine is and there's ugliness in that story and there's brokenness in that story. Um, but by God's grace, you get light. And by recognizing that we all have failures that we're ashamed of or 
pieces of our story that we're ashamed of, but being able to give grace and light to people um, with that is something I just believe in because I believe in redemption. I believe in forgiveness. And so being able to give that to other people uh, is part of how I lead. And so Gravitas for me is really about bringing energy into the room and and making people believe that they could do things that they didn't think that they could do and then showing that that light that there's a better way that there's a that there's hope for tomorrow and that it's a it's a positive way that we can all live and grow together thank you christy I believe that today we have really explored what being an authentic leader is all about. You are truly a leader with gravitas. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership.